Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I am really excited and honored to have a guest that I learned about on social media through his wonderful writing and advocacy. I would like to introduce Matthew Bond. He is the program coordinator of the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs, a national board member with the Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and is a knowledge translator for the Dr. Peter Center. Matt was one of the co-founders of Halifix Overdose Prevention Society, which implemented Atlantic Canada's first overdose prevention site. Matt is also a freelance writer with bylines in Filter Magazine, Katie, The Coast, and The Conversation. And so I actually saw one of your articles, read it, got really excited and tweeted you to come on here. Thank you so much for coming on, Matthew. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm honored to be here. I would like to know, I mean, I just read your very exciting and detailed bio, but if I was in an elevator with you and I didn't know who you were and we were going up one floor and I said, Oh, so what do you do? How do you describe what you do in, say, a short elevator ride? Oh, the elevator pitch of <laughs> what I do? Gee, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't, previously, I don't think I could have done this. Um, but, you know, now, mainly I work in drug policy, you know, trying to advance drug policy for people who use drugs to use safer, uh, to not be criminalized, to not be stigmatized to improve their quality of life. We do a lot of research, engagement. I work for a national organization. We engage people all over the the country, but I think I I just probably am up to two elevators or or two stories now. (laughs) But but yeah, I guess to sum it up, I I am somebody who uses drugs and and really what I want to do is to improve the lives of other people who use drugs. That's amazing. And I just can't wait to learn more about your work. My next question is I'm going to show up. You've shown me the view from your office, which is so beautiful in Dartmouth, right? So I'm going to show up right now. I know that there are some COVID travel restrictions. <laughs> so let's just imagine there's no COVID travel restrictions. And I'm going to show up in my time machine. And my time machine has space for us to physically distance. And I'm going to say, Matthew, in this time machine, can you take me back? to the time and place where you said, I want to do this advocacy work. I want to work to improve the lives of people who use drugs. Where would we go in this time machine? And and just so you know, the time machine can have multiple stopovers. (laughs) So I actually, um, you know, I've been using drugs since I've been 12 years old. Um, So I've been 
have a lot of lived experience kind of practically most of my life. I'm, I'm 30 years old, but I didn't get involved into this work until about 2018. Previously to that, like when I got, I was on methadone in 2012 is when I kind of started or when I was diagnosed with an opioid use disorder and started on methadone um, and did some kind of speakings to or presentations to junior highs and high schools, but didn't really work in the field. Um, that was just kind of, you know, occasionally. Um, and then I, I went back out and experimented some more with, with drug use until it became a problem for me because I had to hide it because of the stigma and discrimination people use drugs experience. Eventually, I ended up in jail. So I got out of jail in, in March of 2018. I went to um, a transitional housing place in Halifax called Alcure, which was a sober living facility at the time, but it was time reduction based. I was allowed on my methadone. I was allowed on my uh, Vivans and my Valium, which some of these transitional or sober living homes don't let you on any prescription. Wow. Even prescriptions. Yeah. Wow. Some of them are, are very strict abstinence based, kind of like the 12 step culture. But this one was ran by a really great executive director. I'll never forget him, Brian. And so that was kind of my, my journey into starting to kind of explore the field of harm reduction, explore drug policy as a, a worker. So I, I became involved with, uh, my first project was like a food insecurity project mm. um, that I was paid for. And I'm uh, so interested in food insecurity. So this is so cool. <laughs> One out of every four uh, Nova Scotians experience food insecurity, and wow. um, I, re I brought a, a different perspective to it. I brought the perspective of prisoners and food insecurity. Like when mm -hmm. I was in jail, I watched more fights over white milk than anything else. So I, re I tried to kind of bring that experience to it, but that was like my first tidbit of just getting into the field, and there's a couple like research kind of focus groups but then they brought me in I actually wrote a poem um I think that's how I really actually got involved in, in speaking and, and writing was through poetry and I wrote a poem for them called what's for lunch and it kind of you know went through my experiences with food insecurity but also things that we could do to you know improve nutrition amongst people now as, as someone who uses drugs um I just kind of got it was really attached to this, the thought of helping people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I just really wanted to give back. I started to get involved with our local drug user group, which at the time was called the Halifax Area Network of Drug Using People. Um, and that's really when I started to get involved, I would say, in, you know, drug user organizing, advocacy, starting to work. I started to work at the Needle Exchange and... We had a prison outreach project, and that was late 2018, early 2019. And, and now you're such a accomplished author. You've been writing so many. You sent me so many links. And what I want the listeners to know is I'm going to have with your bio and the podcast links to your articles. Is your poem available online somewhere? I do have one online. Um, I will send it to you. It's called what about uh, the Slowly Dying. Slowly Dying. Okay. I want to definitely read that. But what about the What's for Lunch poem? I can find a picture of it. Um, so actually, when I got involved into this, I started to do like my, my big envision for kind of 
the way I wanted to be creative and artistic was to do like poetry videos, like music videos, just without music. So having kind of like a a poem voiceover. And I made two of them, uh, which was one was called Slowly Dying and then one was Already Feel Dead. And at the time I was really battling kind of internal stigma, I would say, around drug use and you know thinking that drug use I wasn't I shouldn't be doing it and morally it was wrong and that was really because of the structural and social stigma that I experienced Mm -hmm. I started to believe it myself yeah a lot has transitioned since 2018 2019 but yeah I think that's kind of how I really got involved was kind of through advocacy was through poetry I I did a read a couple poems at um, Prisoner's Justice Day in 20. 18 that's the first time I got paid for a poem um and um, I read that poem and then another poem called 23 hours a day because when I spent when I was in jail a lot of times I was locked down for for 23 hours a day and you get an hour out that was kind of my my for lockdown it means you're not allowed outside not allowed outside your cell so you're like really boxed in. If you have a cellmate, wow. sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Usually when you start, you don't have any. But yeah, at the time, the, the provincial jail, they were doing um, renovations and whatnot. They just had a lot going on. So there, a lot of people were in unnecessary confinement issues or wow. standards. So yeah, I wrote this poem. There's a link to a, a documentary that um, my friend was in, Rodney Small. And he helped me. He was a youth who was incarcerated. Actually, he was the first person that was racially discriminated against. And his case went to the Supreme Court of Canada and he won. I think it might have been locally, but they went all the way to the Supreme Court and they won. And they did a documentary, CBC did a documentary on it called RDS, a story about justice and race. And um, I got to just happen to be, I was with him when he was recording it. And he helped me with that poem, 23 Hours a Day. So um, cool. Yeah. So you do poetry, writing, video. I'm so excited to learn and to, you know, listen and watch more of your your things. Thank you so much. I want to ask you, and I know it really relates to your journey across life and across the time machine journey. The first question I really want to have you explain to the listeners, you did allude to this when you said that the stigma in society became internalized for you and you started to believe it. If, if the listener was to say, why does stigma about drug use or people who use drugs, why does it matter? Why should we care? What would you say? Well, you know, the stigma that people who use drugs experience is, from my perspective is the leading cause of the death, right? You know, mm-hmm. stigma is why people use alone. People are stigmatized because they are criminalized. So really, you know, there's that structural stigma against drug users that really forces people away from traditional health care, forces people to use alone, to not to reach out for help. We have to treat people as people first, regardless if they use drugs, regardless of, you know, whatever it is that somebody may be worried about. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody is people. And that's why, you know, that's why we always say people who use drugs, person first language. We put the, the person in front of 
you know, the, the who uses drugs because, you know, a lot of times people who use drugs only have a safe place to go and share if they're not using anymore. And when I'm talking about it's kind of 12 step fellowships and whatnot, you go there when you're not using drugs. So in society, there's not too many places for people who use drugs to really go and openly talk about their drug use and be supportive, right? And I think, you know, we're in an overdose crisis. COVID-19 has accelerated that, you know, we have six people a day dying in British Columbia alone. And, you know, in Ontario, it's the numbers are very similar to British Columbia as well. A lot of people are dying. And, and you know, I would say that the leading factor is the stigma and the discrimination is why people continue to die. So I think that's so powerful. So people are, the stigma is leading to people dying because it's creating criminalization or it's it's fueling criminalization, which makes people, you know, afraid to seek healthcare. And when they seek healthcare, they might be discriminated against and also making people isolated, like not being able to talk or about things or use other people. Wow, it sounds like we should all care. <laughs> and I remember and when you said people first language, I just want to, for the listeners, say in the field of work I do, most of my research is HIV related. For a long time, people literally referred to people who injected drugs as IDUs, so injection drug users. That was the term that is still found in a lot of publications. And I'm always like, actually, this is a person first who might be using drugs or injecting drugs. But I think there is so much humanity lost when we, when we don't consider that, oh, this is a, a human, a person, and this just happens to be what, another thing that's going on in their life. And, you know, like um, just with the acronyms and whatnot, you know, a lot of times I'll go to conferences or whatnot and you'll see people refer to instead of people who use drugs, they'll say PWUD or, you know, they'll kind of just take away that person first language. And we're like, you know, like you have to have conversations with people and be like, actually, the reason why we do that is not to call them something else as an IDU or PWUD. It's usually because of academic wording that you need to probably save words on is why you're referring to them in an acronym. But you're so right <laughs> it's they're trying to be lazy with the word count right 100 <laughs> percent, and i get it right like i i've done some academic writing and i know you have to save words and if you're going to continuously be saying that but when you go to a presentation and you're presenting your findings you don't have to be lazy with saying an acronym for saying people who use drugs and you know that's just one example when i think you know really the the criminalization is what fuels the, the stigma, but also people who use drugs experience stigma and discrimination from many different other sources, uh, or, or I guess not other sources, but other avenues. So HIV, you know, there's a high population of people who use drugs who have HIV who experience stigma uh, related to HIV and drug use, or hepatitis mm-hmm. C and drug use, or it's homelessness and drug use, or it's yes. criminalization and drug use. So there's so much intersecting stigma that people use drugs experience it's just so overwhelming sometimes right it really is absolutely and what you said earlier about the intersection of racism 
with drug use stigma as well. And we know that there's also sexism and gender discrimination and homophobia and transphobia. It's, it is quite overwhelming. We're going to get to your ideas for solutions soon. But before we go there, I wonder if you could break it down for the listener. What does stigma look like in a day-to-day life experience? So for example, maybe somebody who happens to also be a person who uses drugs wakes up in the morning. Can you maybe walk us through what stigma looks like? No, it's, it's such a great question. You know, so for me, I like, for, you know, for the listeners to hear as well, you know, stigma, there's different levels of stigma. So you got your structural stigma that could be by, you know, the government, by police, by education, schools, whatnot. You got social stigma, which you could be experiencing from friends and family. And then, as I talked about previously, you got that internalized stigma. So a lot of times you have different experiences that you may not um, even know what you really are experiencing until you really think about it. And I guess one great example, it's not really a great example, it's a horrible example of stigma because, you know, I had to experience it, but I think it, it lays it out pretty good for people to understand. So back in 2015, 2016, I wanted to get treated for hepatitis C. At that time, I had a methadone provider and I had an infectious disease doctor, but I didn't have a family physician. So I was an unattached patient is what you would call. And I had a good paying job. The job was even willing to pay for the hepatitis C treatment, but I needed a family doctor to go over my blood work to do follow up. And at that time, you know, I was, I was always really open about my hepatitis C. You know, if I was using drugs with people, I would tell them, even if I was just sniffing cocaine or whatnot. And I remember people always being like, geez, don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. And I'm thinking, I'm just trying to like, don't use my straw. That's all I'm saying. Like, I don't want to give you hepatitis C. But people you're, you're practicing get... prevention of transmission of any other <laughs> infections. Yeah. And that was before I was even really involved in arm reduction. You know, that was just me kind of being sensible. And I even remember once at work, I was at um, working at McDonald's back in 2014. Uh, and I cut myself. And I went and told my boss and they're like, oh, I'll just put a bandit on it. And, I, you know, I had to explain to him about hepatitis C. And, you know, eventually they like it all geared up. But then they went and told other staff and I was just looked at differently. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it looked like I was a, a disease walking and that I could infect people. And, you know, these are kind of just examples that I, that I thought of. But back to my my original example. Yes, I, I was going to say, get- what happened with this family doctor situation? <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to get treated for hep C and I literally, I called and we have, you know, a, a shortage of family doctors in Nova Scotia, probably like everywhere else, but mm-hmm. I called 40 or 50 family doctors. Wow. I called everyone on the list. You know, the nicest answer I got was, you know, call me back when you're off methadone. So right away, you know, they're discriminating against me because I'm on medication that, you know, is for people with an opioid use disorder. You're saying the doctors would refuse to see you because you're taking a prescription of methadone. Yeah. And, you know, I had a doctor prescribing the methadone and wow. I, kept, I said that to them. I said, look, I'm, I don't need you for any medications. I'm just, can you look at my blood work? Wow. Can you look and follow me up for hepatitis C treatment? Some of them hung up on me. Some of them wouldn't take the call. You wow. know, and this was like literally calling everyone I knew. 
uh, or everyone I had a list of kind of to call. And, you know, and that really reiterated that internal stigma. You know, after I didn't get treated for hepatitis C, it started to really weigh on me. And, I, and that's when I eventually ended up spiraling to a place where I ended up in jail. But it really started with, you know, I had this great paying job, didn't really like it, so it didn't really, really help. But they were willing, I had a great support of staff. You never found a doctor that would help you? I did in 2019, but not that- from... Wow. that group of doctors yeah so why do you and, think they wouldn't like what are, what's going on in their minds that they do they not understand do they have bias I'm, I'm sure it's a combination what's from your expertise and your lived experiences why are they saying no i won't treat no, you I, I wish <laughs> i wish I, I i knew the answer and um you know i think yeah there's a lot of a lot of people with biases, as soon as they heard hepatitis C, they didn't even have to hear about methadone. They automatically related it to drug use, right? Like even be, I remember calling one person and and there was a men person to a doctor and said, you know, I got hepatitis C. And they're like, well, what, what, what drugs are you seeking? What drugs do you need? And I was like, I don't need any drugs, you know? And then I was like, well, I'm on methadone. Oh, well, we don't prescribe said I, I don't need you to prescribe that but like it was always like every time I spoke about my health care you know relating to my opioid use disorder relating to hepatitis C it was an issue for them they just wanted to hand it off to somebody else for the longest time I did not have a family doctor you know because of these reasons um, you know, the only doctors I ever really felt comfortable with were my methadone doctors and you know luckily there was a great nurse practitioner who worked at the infectious disease clinic. And she's like, I know a great doctor who uh, accepts people on methadone and I'm going to refer you to him. And he's like, you know, he's like, it was very hard doctor to get into because there's very few that treat people as human beings rather than as their diseases. Eventually I got in with him and he referred me to Dr. Lisa Barrett and I got treated very quickly. (laughs) Once I went through all that, for about four or five years eventually once i had a good family doctor it was like six months by the time i was treated yeah i shouldn't be surprised you know i've i mentioned to you earlier back in i think 2006 i did some work as when i was a student with people who are using drugs who told me about terrible mistreatment and even um with the canadian public health association i, I did some work at, in new brunswick in some focus groups with people who are using drugs there and heard about terrible stigma. And I'm still, I'm still right now feeling shocked that doctors are allowed to refuse to treat people based on their use of methadone. I just don't even understand how we are allowing a system. If you came in and said, I'm on chemo for something, would, would, oh no, sorry, we don't, we won't take anybody. I don't know. I mean, I don't know why I'm still feeling like I can't believe they're being so blatant. Like, so you're, like this example you're giving is of this very blatant, open stigma. Oh, yeah. It's, and, you know, I think people who use drugs experience that blatant, open stigma all the time. And really, they're experiencing the discrimination, which is, you know, the act of kind of the stigma. But, you know, because drugs are criminalized, because there's this othering of people who use drugs, people 
a lot of times in their social circles accept it. A lot of times people think that, them, you know, or think it and they don't say it. So when it happens, it's just like, oh, well, you know, he was a drug user and, you know, he shouldn't have been treated for his hep C then. That was the big thing, right? Like if you had hep C and you were treated, you had to be back when I couldn't get treated. You, there was all these requirements. You, had to, you couldn't, you had to be like not using for a year or two years, which doesn't make sense. Do you think you'd want to treat people who are using so they're not going to reinfect people or like oh, contract, yeah. contract it and transmit it? Yeah, like there was a lot of rules and regulations. So I think you had to have stable housing and all these things. So it was really easy for people to be denied. That allowed Nova Scotia to have 300 new diagnoses of hepatitis C every year. And, you know, Canada has signed on to eliminate hepatitis C by 2030. But the way that people who use drugs are faced within the traditional healthcare system, and that will never happen. Yeah, it's just, I can't believe we're 2020 and we're still doing this. Before I ask you the final statement question, I just, because the final statement question, I'm going to tell you what it is now, is what can people do about it? But I want to preface that. Because you mentioned, you talked a lot about um, structural level stigma in criminalization and healthcare. I want you to explain to the listener, what is the social stigma? How are people experiencing that? Because you mentioned othering. I'm just wondering, because I feel like if people are going to be part of the solution, they need to know what are their own biases? What is this in society, this judgment that's very specific towards people who use drugs? And how is that experienced by somebody? Like the social norms kind of that othering? I think we, we see a lot of this, especially now on social media even as well, um, where people can, um, or, or I guess an example is like, you know, when people are advocating for an overdose prevention site mm-hmm. and you have a, a group, a community group that is very against it, nimbyism, you know, not my backyard. There's no way we're going to have people use drugs using safely next to me mm-hmm. um, and that is is experience all the time it's in like, toronto you know, like, everywhere people are like even not too far from where i live people were protesting it and they, they still built the I, i'm not exactly sure because it's still being built but something is still being built but there was that whole there's always this pushback right like i don't want that something bad is going to happen <laughs> well and you know if you look at the research around drug use we know that people use drugs across all different diversities, all different races, all different genders, they all use drugs the same, really. Um, you know, people who use are rich and live in the rich part of town, they use different kinds of drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe it's cocaine and alcohol. Um, but, you know, it's really this perception of what people think people who use drugs look like. And, you know, I think they think they're homeless, they think track marks. Uh, that they have to be injecting drugs. And people really have this bias, this view of what people who use drugs look like. So when they see somebody like that, you know, they're just not nice. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know how, you know, they're really just mean to the person trying to access the services or health care as somebody who uses drugs. And you get somebody who opposed to uh, harm reduction or safe drug use. They just won't treat you the same way they would anybody else. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they'll make you wait. Maybe they'll ask you questions to dig more into your life to find a way to refuse you. You know, I think the social stigma I experience it a lot with my family, where they just don't understand it. Right? They don't really get what harm reduction is. You know, what safe 
drug use means and thinking about my parents or whatnot i get it i'm their i'm their son and they don't want me to see me going down a bad path but constantly telling them is listen i use drugs i'm open about my drug use if i have to hide it and lie to you guys that's what is going to cause me to die that's what's going to cause me to be forced to use alone in a room and not be able to, to openly share with you. Naloxone, which is the overdose savior of people, and it reverses overdoses, is the one antidote we have currently to reverse an overdose. It, it's only good if the people around you have it. You know, if mm-hmm. I'm the drug user and I'm the one carrying the naloxone because parents don't want to know about it because of the stigma and the discrimination or they're just not willing to learn about it, it's no good if it's hidden in my book bag when I'm overdosing. Um, totally. And, you know, I have great supports in my life now where I can call somebody and just say, look, I'm using this new batch of fentanyl. I'm using this batch of whatever. Can you stay on the phone with me? Here's my address. Just so one person knows that I'm using and where I'm using, it can save my life. And so I've really incorporated that. Ontario has an overdose prevention hotline but you know like these are just little things that i guess you know that really build up when i can't talk to my family about drug use who do you who do you go to right for a long time i worked in an environment of harm reduction harm reduction organizations that were very abstinence based so if you wanted to work there you couldn't be using and I had to lie. I had to Which hide is my really life. kind of a funny philosophy. <laughs> because normally you're like, practice what you preach, right? Like if you really are about harm reduction, then support people practicing that. They're a wonderful example of this philosophy, right? <laughs> and, you know, like, like locally here anyways in, in Halifax, you know, a lot of organizations are, are are kind of ran by people with lived experience, but like people with lived experience of drug use 20 years ago that they've went to NA and NA has saved their life or whatever, but that limit so many people from kind of entering or, or wanting to get involved. They're even talking about it. Like I was forced to go to those meetings half my life and they never, um, I never felt open and welcome and supportive as I did in a drug user group where I'm talking about my drug use around my fellow users. But yeah, like locally, if you want to work in the harm reduction field and the organizations, you can't be using. And I'm like, that is so insane. And you know, it forces people again to hide the alleyways, to hide, you know, not to go to traditional healthcare, not even to seek a doctor sometimes, right? Because now you're thinking, oh, well, I really should have a doctor, see a doctor for this, but I could lose my job over it. Mm. Um, or I really do need safe supplies, but I can't ask them for it because they'll know I'm using. It's like this culture of kind of unspoken abstinence where, you know, that's what they want to see out of their workers. And, you know, now where I'm working for the National Drug User Group, it's changed. And, you know, by far the probably why I'm alive today, probably because I I overdosed not too long ago. And the only reason why I was using around people and open about it is because I could be, and I wasn't fearful of my job. Mm. I mean, I wasn't fearful of my, of of my colleagues or my organization of judging me or, you know, stigmatizing me, but previously I I would have been. So thank you for, um, you've just been so insightful and 
so generous and sharing all of these really personal and, you know, also just like experiences of stigma over, over time. And I want you to tell the listener who might be walking their dog, listening to this, what can they do to be part of the solution? I think one thing you've made really clear is we should not judge people who use drugs, whether they're our family member, whether they're our colleague, whether there's somebody walking down the street or sitting on the street, no matter what people, what their role in our lives are or who they are, let's just not judge people as being different or less than or other. And I know you have a lot more ideas about how we, as in the rest of the world, because this is a global issue, can be part of a solution to ending the stigma. No, I think one thing anybody can do is really raising their own awareness. Learn about people who use drugs. Look at the academic literature. Look at the gray literature. Look at the pieces written for and by people who use drugs. You know, there's so many different good movies and documentaries and stories. And there's so much you can do, right? Like, And I think really getting to know the community is, is one thing, you know, really... I think everybody is impacted by this overdose crisis in one way or another. Maybe it is a colleague they know, maybe it is a family member, but when we're, we're not open or open-minded or, or even willing to kind of learn about and, and respect people who use drugs, it just perpetuates the stigma and allows the government to continually cr- criminalize drugs. As I said before, that is the main reason why drug use is stigmatized is because it's criminalized. Mm-hmm. You know, so an, another thing is people can get behind the decriminalization movement. They can look to the examples of Portugal, which decriminalized drug use almost 20 years ago now, and they've seen such amazing positive results. You know, mm-hmm. HIV rates are down, overdose deaths are down, drug use is down or around the same, you know, uh, I think a lot of people just assume that if we're going to give people safe drug using supplies, people are going to use more drugs. And that's not what happened. Yeah, the, um, the world did not fall apart in Canada when they decriminalized marijuana. <laughs> what was it? Years? I don't even know when it happened. It was such a non-catastrophe, right? <laughs> like, really, we can learn from other places. Don't, you know, learn from Portugal. It's like, wow, such a good idea. Well, and actually, there was a piece that I helped produce and filter, which was around decriminalization and that we're just fear. I guess the main thing was it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's eventually going to happen in Canada. And um, we looked at some polls and, you know, back in when Trudeau was running for cannabis and, you know, if, if society agreed with, you know, legalizing cannabis use slowly over a period of time, it increased to people did agree with it. And that's what we're starting to see with decriminalization as well. And, and we're hoping we'll continue to see it to a point where the government is more or less forced to. And we are seeing it. The, the police chiefs are calling for it. The prosecutors are calling for it. So it's just a matter of time. But if we really want to talk about ending the stigma against drug users, that is like the, the main piece, you know, is we have to stop criminalizing them. Thank you so much. That has been so wonderful. Before we go today, I want to ask you some wild card questions so the listeners can learn about the real you. Okay? Are you ready? Sounds good. When? What are you watching on Netflix right now? Oh, I'm watching The West Wing right now, actually. I've never watched that. It's like a politics, right? 
Yeah, it's created by Aaron Sorkin, and uh, he's like probably my favorite tele. He's a writer actually, um, but he does like screenplay for television, uh, television shows. He did the newsroom, which I just watched, and that was really good. So I haven't seen that either. I'm always like selfishly also asking these questions so I can get new <laughs> new ideas. <laughs> so this isn't on Netflix. This is I get it on Apple TV. I'm a, a diehard Apple fan, so um, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll switch over to Netflix, but I'm not like dead. I'm more of a crave guy. Okay, I've I've tried the Amazon Prime and the Netflix. But Crave, I think, has the Canada's Drag Race. So, oh, and I, I had to watch it someone else's house because I was like, what? <sighs> okay, good. Number two, if you could go for dinner, imagine there's no COVID and no travel bans. If you go for dinner anywhere in the world with anybody, living or dead, where would you go and who would you take? Oh, jeez. So I would go with Hunter S. Thompson if he was alive. Nice. And I don't know, I'd probably let him choose the place because <laughs> he'd have some somewhere probably, I don't know, somewhere is really uh, great to go. I don't know. But I, like I grew up reading his books and, and it really changed my life. I think it actually made me realize that I can be open about my drug use. You know, we have a mm-hmm. very famous writer who, who's wrote a lot of books about himself, but also has done like real journalism. And, but, you know, always was never believed in objectivity. You know, he, he didn't think that you could be completely objective, that we all have biases. You just have to face them. Mm. Um, and, and that is more of a, a real journalist ethics than trying to be objective when it's really hard not to be. Um, but yeah his, his his books changed my life i just want to throw this out there he inspired you by being open about who he was and his drug use and i'm just suggesting maybe you are also inspiring a lot of other people by being a journalist yeah. who's you know very open and successful so that's really that's really cool i have my final question is there any words of wisdom or advice you would like to share with the listeners just to, to piggyback on, on what you said, um, I, I guess for people who use drugs out there or people who may have to hide their drug use, you don't have to. There's always someone that you can reach out to. You can reach out to me, um, you know, try to find that one supportive person in, in your circle of friends that, you know, you can talk to. So you don't have to hide as someone who uses drugs. You experience a lot of things. It could be, a you know, an HIV test. It could be you're going through the criminal justice system and, and it's so important to have supports and mentors. Find that person that can empower you, that has maybe they have a little bit more privilege than you and they and they can empower you and support you along your journey because I've had so many people support me and I just think um, it's so essential in life to have those key people and also, you know, mix it up, be different, have different perspectives, different races, different genders. Just have everybody that you can learn from people. And, you know, you may find a best friend, you may find a mentor, you may find a colleague and, and somebody by just reaching out. And I think that's one thing that I've always done is never been afraid to reach out to people. And, and it really has supported me and helped me in my prayer. And I, and I wish people would do it more. That is so beautiful. I really love that message that even if you feel alone, it doesn't have to stay that way, that 
reach out and somebody you'll find some support and then also be that be that supportive person when people reach out to you be the person that you would want to have when you're struggling or feeling isolated so thank you so much this has been so wonderful having you as a podcast guest thank you so much thank you very much it was um, it was really nice just chatting with you Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world.